Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com I believe in the theater. I believe that in dialogue, thought, expression, and communication, a healing can take place. I ask to be a part of that healing. If I can be of service, I offer up everything. I offer my whole life. Welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. And this week's episode, are you feeling cold? As I record this, it's December in the south of England. As I look out across the fields of Hampshire, it is white with frost. Everyone is sort of shivering, it feels like. If you need to be warmed, if you need to have your pilot light reel it for creativity in general, but for the theatre in particular, have I got the episode for you. In fact, the double episode, because this conversation was too good to be contained in one episode. We had to do two, and frankly, we could have done 22. This week's guest is the director, the documentary maker, the author, the movie star, and the lifelong passionate theatre enthusiast that is Ethan Hawke. Now, you may know Ethan as a film star from pretty young. He started out, as he talks about in this <laughs> magnificent chat, when he was 16 and became famous with Dead Poets Society when I think he was 18, 19. But he has had a lifelong love affair with the theatre. In many ways, it's his first and primary passion, as he talks about. You may not know, for example, that he did uh, Tom Stoppard's extraordinary trilogy of plays about the Russian Revolution called The Coast of Utopia in New York, and he was Tony nominated for it. His first Broadway play was playing Constantine in the Seagull with Laura Linney and John Voight and Tyne Daly. He's done Macbeth very recently on stage in New York with the great Anne-Marie Duff, directed by his mentor, wonderful director Jack O'Brien. He spent a lifetime in the theatre. And to listen to him talk about it is to be reminded of why it's essential. If your faith is wavering, listen to this guy. We talked in the basement apartment of our mutual friends, Emily Mortimer and Alessandro Nivola's house in Brooklyn in October. And it was an extraordinary gift. I really wish I hadn't opened my mouth and just let Ethan talk because he is magnificent. And just to underline how he feels about theatre, Ethan wrote the most extraordinary novel about what it feels like in your body, on your nerve endings, in the pores of your skin, 
to be an actor on stage. It's called A Bright Ray of Darkness, and it's the best description of what an actor in a theatre is feeling that I have ever read. But first, we completely fail to make a coffee machine work, which annoyingly just confirms the cliche that actors are sort of helpless children. But what we lack in practical skills, I hope you'll agree we make up for in sheer enthusiasm. Gentlemen of the stage door, Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Mr. Hawk and Mr. Cake to the stage, please. This is your beginner's. Ethan, thank you so much for doing this. You've written this beautiful book about what it feels like to be an actor on stage. When you were growing up, did you hear other actors' stories? Were you aware of them? You know, I would do anything. To be, when I was a kid, you used to hear about Richard Harris and Albert Finney right. talking for hours or sharing their experiences. Right. And, like, and sometimes those stories would make it back, but they never made it into my psyche deep enough to be able to repeat them or know what they said. I just remember it was funny and they were drunk and <laughs> he walked out on stage and that one didn't know his line and that one had the wrong hat on. Right. And it is funny because there are people, smart people that I know that were angry at my book because it almost felt like a violation of some sacred trust. They were worried. Well, actually, I'm going to be less coy because I love this person I'm talking to, but I got a letter from Sir Tom Stoppard. Whoa. Right? Saying, I read your book and I got about 60 pages in and I threw it against the wall. I was so angry. said, you just can't do it. You can't hyperbolize our lives. He he felt he wrote it very beautiful, but I felt extremely torn between that I enjoyed it and I felt that you were showing how to make the sausage in a way that was both deifying it and demystifying it simultaneously and it confused my brain. Mm. And I didn't think you should do that. It's it's like what does happen in that rehearsal space is sacred. It's almost like this is not what he said, but it, it, it felt what he was saying. It was almost like you have a, a love affair and then somebody writes a torrid romance novel about it. It actually is private and it actually is sacred and you shouldn't be writing that. No, he went on, he said, and it sat on the floor for a while. And then I decided to pick it back up and I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm giving up on this coffee because I can't. Are we recording? No, are you, we're totally recording, yeah. Okay. No, uh, you mustn't give up on this coffee. Well, I, I just, just can't, can't make it work. Serious? Well, here. All right. All right. Yeah, let me, um, all right, that hasn't been done. It didn't even get done. This is going to be. Don't put another one in. Oh, you already put one in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Okay. This is hilarious. It's going to be a podcast of us making coffee. Okay, let's get that cup. There it is, right there, right? No, you want a you want a big one or a short one? Is it going to work? Yeah. Is it connected? Yeah. It's going to not work. All right, let's not do a big one. Let's just try and do a small one and see if that helps. Outraged on your behalf. You went to Blue Bottle's bullshit. Oh shit, and didn't get you a coffee? Yeah. That's me. <laughs> All right. I'm totally, I would say I have something in my head, but I don't even need one. All right. Anyway, would I, uh, if, if we're recording, then I'll, yeah. uh, hey, let's circle back. Let's circle back. 
So this is an incredible, this, inc- <laughs> this is incredible about Tom Stoppard because he's a great mentor of yours, right? Yeah. Would you describe him as that? Mm, right. So, yeah. Did you first meet him when you did Coast of Utopia or was that the first time? Yeah. The, the first time I met him and you have to understand how potent it was to be in a rehearsal room with one of the greatest minds alive on the planet in theater and being directed by a person who is a master craftsman. So he wasn't, it's not like, I I imagine if you watch Tom with this young buck director, this one, but Tom and Jack have a long relationship. Sometimes they get along, sometimes they fight, sometimes they squabble, but there is a a base note of mutual respect. And I had these ideas about what a director was, which was that they are the authority. They are the director. And Jack is a great listener. And he really welcomes Tom's ideas. And his, and his ego was never threatened or diminished by them. You know, some people, they, in, in order to be respectful, they bow their head and then their ideas are gone. Jack is unquenchable. I mean, you can't, he's, he's such an enthusiastic soul that you can't stop him, but he's not so enthusiastic that he can't listen. And it became for all of us, you know, it was Martha Plimpton, David Harbour, Richard Easton, Billy Crudup, um, Josh Hamilton, Jennifer Ely. I mean, we had an amazing company of people and watching the two of them bar, dance. You know, Jack would say something. What's important is you've got to put your whole heart and soul into it. You've got to put your sweat and your blood. I need to feel your pulse of your life. And, and, and Tom would go, well, perhaps most important is clarity of utterance. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then Jack would say, both. You have to do them both. You, you know, um, it felt like um, watching you know, like uh, Lennon McCartney or something. Yeah. You, you you were in the presence of two master craftsmen who had different energies, neither one of which allowed themselves to be diminished. Would you say at the peak of their powers too? I, I would. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to imply that they don't, they of might not have not. another bloom that no, is different. No, no. But, but we're talking, this is, this is Tom. Tom has already conquered the English speaking stage, right? But he's dropping a nine hour play in his early seventies on mid 19th century Russian revolutionaries. (laughs) So he's never aspired further. I mean, yeah, he wrote a play about James Joyce. That's a tough one to do, but this is big. And the, the swing was so epic. And then you have Jack, who's run theater companies all over the world. He's directed Shakespeare up and down and musicals and, and, and he's a lot of stopper plays and everything. But, but he had X amount of days to put nine hours of theater to stage that. It's a Herculean task yeah. to try to say that you're going to do. So I felt I was witnessing two great artists at the peak of their powers and in the luxurious position of having the respect of the theater community in that we had some of the best lighting designers in the world. We had some of the best stage crafts and some of the best costume designers. So it, their light drew a lot of, you know, there were a lot of us moths flying around that light and, right. and that we gained power from all those little moths. Right. And one of the amazing things about it was also the, the plays, right, are sort of about becoming who they become. It's about many other things too, but these people are, these people are at, an inflection point in all their lives, right? 
did you feel that too as actors that there was a group there that were becoming you know like the leading stage well, performers of their generation in the in the course of doing that show or is that too glib to say i felt a part of something that as an american actor i'd never been near mm. which was repertory theater yeah which is an old thing that we all read about where we're doing you know we have our first preview on the same day as our first rehearsal for play number two. <laughs> then we're doing two plays in rep while rehearsing the third play. And then it, it was like jugglers, you know, and then we put the third play in the curriculum, you know, in, in the dance. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are doubling, you know, they're this character in one play and another character in another play. And a couple of us had part continuity through the three plays. But even in my character, I was getting to play I was 35 in the first play, I'm playing 25. In the second play, I'm playing my age. In the third play, I'm playing 55. Mm. So I, I was the perfect age to swing, right. you, you know, to, to, to hit yeah. all the ages. And I was kind of teaching myself, the older actor that I would become. I was amazed the confidence I had when playing the 55-year-old. I was like, oh, this is going to be great. When you don't care what you look like anymore, like, oh, all right, I can be fat in this one. You, you know what I mean? I, my gut can hang out here. This is okay. And so there was that aspect of feeling like, wow, this is an ancient profession. Yeah. Like, because Richard Easton would be the great Canadian uh, Shakespearean actor, he, 25 years at RSC. Sure. And, you know, he had done five Shakespeare plays in rep with Alec Guinness right after the war, traveling through um, war torn Europe, you know? Like, I mean, he had these stories. He's like, oh, this is easy, you know? I mean, he was so wonderful. And so you felt in touch with that lineage because yeah. he was there, yeah. Tom and Jack all knew the same people that re they, they would cite this vocal coach that, Oh yeah, her. And of course I didn't know who she was, but they were like, well, <laughs> Susan would never put up with those teas, you know? <laughs> um, but so you felt yourself in touch with something. It did feel good. I remember Phil Hoffman coming backstage one time and, and just, there was a look in his eye that made me really proud, mm. you know, just because he was like, what are you guys doing? Wow. Like, what is this? Like, you know, the, I remember he was going, you know, this is really important. <sighs> I was like, really? You think so? He goes, yeah, I've never seen this. I've never seen this. He came to one marathon or something, right. you know, and it, and it was like, this is an event. Oh, you know? And so I was aware, we were all aware that we would never be able to return to this moment. You know, and yeah. you, whatever play you're doing, you know, even when it's bad, Laura Linney tells a, a great story. I, I use a piece of it in the Newman Woodward doc about Joanne coming to see her in a really terrible production. And Laura was looking for advice. And Joanne said simply, sometimes there's nothing you can do. But what she went on to say that's not in the documentary is she went on to tell Laura, when you're failing, you can use your time. Oh. Use your time. Figure out how to be a little bit more present. Don't worry about fixing the evening. Don't worry about making it work better. It's not gonna, <laughs> you, you know, but you can work on your breathing. Huh. You can work on your relaxation. You can work on your moment to moment work. Give up on it working. It right. ain't gonna work. And she was like, I'm sure it wasn't Laura's fault, right? You know, so we're a part of a collective of imagination art. Like when it works, it's not, you know, when you're really good in something, a lot of people are making that play for you. Yeah. 
And when you're not working, it's not all your fault. No. I mean, I have a, a bunch of stories I want to tell you about that just because I was thinking about yeah. your emails and things like the one that relates that I think you would get a kick out of is I was in a production that was really not working, right? It's an off-Broadway show. And it was one of those where you have a monologue to the audience in the second act. Yeah. And I'm watching them leave. <laughs> you, you know? And, the seats and, are tipping up in front of you. Yeah, seats are tipping up. People are trying to make the 1040 Trenton local or whatever the hell they're doing, <laughs> you, you, you know? And it's so hard oh. to keep, you know, and I'm, my character's crying and stuff like that. And some part of your brain is going, two people, three people are leaving, yeah. six people are leaving. And I would come, I, I would come to rehearsal the next day and say to the directors, like, we have got to pace this up. I'm being publicly executed. <laughs> you know, it's not me. They're bored shitless, right? And I, there's no commitment to this character that I can do. And like, we've got to pace up act one. We're, I'm dying out there. Like, I'm fucking dying. And then they're like, no, I think it's working. It's not working. They're leaving in droves. Who cares? They're idiots. Yeah, easy to say that when you're not the one that's listening to the seats popping, right? Oh and so I'm really, really struggling and I'm really struggling. And I'm sitting in a cafe eating breakfast. And I'm despondent and it's snowing out. And who walks by the cafe but Mark Rylance? And I freaking love Mark Rylance, yeah. right? Right. Like I just adore. I mean, he's a greatest he, actor in the world. I think he's our, he's our, you know, he, he's our Dylan. There's a lot of people who are good and I know what they're doing. I don't know what he's up to. No one knows what he's up to. I don't know what he's up to and it works and it's magical. And he does for me what I think our profession can do. It's, it's, it's a spiritual experience. Watch. It's a, by definition, a spiritual, a common humanity experience. It's your collective humanity is better because you watched him. It's like, I remember the first time I saw him act on stage, I, I, I was like, I told my wife, I was like, it's like I just saw Jimi Hendrix rip a solo. I, I, I don't know why it's so much better, but I, it's just different. Anyway, he's walking down the street in a snowstorm. And I'm like, uh, excuse me, Mr. Rylance, Mr. Rylance. And he turns, oh, yes, yes. I said, hi, my name's Ethan Hawk, and I'm an actor. Yes, I, I know, I know. And I said, I'm just, I'm suffering. Like, and I saw you walk by and you, you're my favorite actor. And I, I, can I just, I'm dying on stage every night. And I thought I ranted and raved about this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. And he said, have you been directing? I said, yes. He said, have you directed in that theater? I said, yes, I have. Sounds like it. Sounds like you're trying to direct this show. You haven't even told me who you're playing. Who are you playing? I don't care if people leave. That's someone else's problem. You know, it, and it was kind of like the Joanne Woodward use your time thing. Yeah. He, he was like, you, I, you haven't even mentioned your character. <gasps> Who is he? <laughs> people leave for all kinds of reasons. Mostly because they're stupid. I like your impression of that. It's, <laughs> that's kind of Willy Wonka. <laughs> he a, just kind of has this kind yeah, of... Yes, otherworldly. It's just he's other, not of this he's an elf. It's, it's like Ariel. Like yeah, you're talking he, he to is, Ariel. It is, I have a couple amazing... Rylance stories. But, but did you think that was true? That, that, was oh, that like, man. that was hitting the nail on the head? It was Your so, outside eye was I, so involved. And in, how he picked yeah. up on that by what I was saying shows his experience. Yeah. That I, because I remember exactly what he said. Sounds to me like you're still sitting there next to the stage manager watching the show. And I had directed in that theater. 
and I had been in the box. And I, you know, I watched, uh, you know, I would have been up in that box watching Alessandro act just a year earlier. It was you, in the Acorn? Yeah, it was it in was the Acorn. Where you, where you directed Lie of the Mind? Yeah, where I directed Lie of the Mind. And so, and that was a great, so this is my first time acting after this really right. great experience directing. Yes, and I was still trying to direct and I was yeah. directing myself. Yeah. And I was trying to pace up the show. I was like, let somebody else worry about right, that. I've right. got to tell the truth on right, stage. Right. And I've got to play my position. Right. Right? I have to know if the next night people still walked out. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they did. But there's nothing they, you can do. There's nothing you can do. But I had a better time. Ah. I just started to embrace the opportunity to perform yeah. just to remember to be grateful yeah. like this is a wonderful part this is a wonderful group of people yeah. and it really may not work <sighs> and it's okay yeah it's really okay oh that's incredible and you've got to get that part of your brain that wants things to succeed yeah. you got to kill that part yeah. of your brain yeah. i had a similar thing happen a little while ago i used to suffer i still do Badly from nerves. I mean, just everyone. Everyone. Well, you read nerves, my book, right? right? Yeah, uh, I did too. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask you more about that. But you know, everyone. Everyone suffers from nerves. Of course, if you don't, I think something's wrong with you. You might be a psychopath if you're not getting nervous before public performance because it's weird and scary. But it, I, I used to feel like my nerves got in between me and the thing too much and for too long and disproportionately and all that stuff. I suddenly had this real, real sort of moment of clarity about. I was doing a production of Much Ado About Nothing, and I suddenly realised this is a little bit of a version of what Mark was saying. I think no one, I don't care who you are, no one loves these words more than I do. No one. I'll take on anybody in a Shakespeare word-loving competition, you know. And it suddenly felt like. So that's the focus of the thing. These words, in fact, are a kind of force field. These words are a protection. It, it, it somehow divorced me from the self-consciousness that we all have and carry with us, right, of thinking, is that seat flipping up? If we can dive back into the thing, it's our, it's our salvation. And what you're talking about in simplistic terms is, is being in service. One of my earliest experiences, I was at Steppenwolf and I was doing Buried Child and it was at the 20th anniversary of Steppenwolf and I grew up loving Steppenwolf and I love Sam Shepard and Sam's there and Sinise is directing. He's co-founder of this company. I admire Sinise so much and it's early in previews and my nerves are such an obstacle. Huh. I mean, I, I can't even see. Huh. You, you, you know, it's like one thing, oh, we're like, whatever. My fucking pupils are vibrating. <laughs> And I drop a line. And the self-laceration is so intense that I miss my next one. You know? And then I come back stage, you know, probably punch myself in the face or, you know, slam my head into a wall or something. I was so mad at myself. And then I was dizzy. Now it's worse. And this thought occurred to me just love the play. Just say the next line. You don't have to act it well. You just have to serve this play. You cannot. You beating yourself up is not helping. It was clear. The more I made things, I was just making things worse and worse. 
And then if I just went up there and I looked at Ted Levine, if I looked at Ted Levine, looked him in the eyes, and this line is great line that's about to come out of my mouth. I'm not great. This line is great. This situation is dynamic as hell. And then you get a little air in your sails. You know, in that little air of confidence. And then you do it. But it was exactly what it's like. When you're thinking about you, the nerves get totally of overcome. Yeah. If you're thinking about your other players, if you're thinking about the song yeah. you're singing, yeah. you know, and not worrying, you may not be any good. Right. It, it, and that's totally fair. Yeah. It's a totally fair assessment, yeah. you know? So I, I love that, what you just said. Um, I want to hear those Ryland stories. But before you do, there's a thing that you said. You did. You, you, you were doing a production of Camino Real, and um, you're Tennessee Williams' second cousin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. so crazy. Yeah, I don't so think cool. I ever knew that. Tennessee Williams and my grandfather were first cousins. That's mad. Yeah, so cool. Right? Did Did it give you a sort of feeling growing up, knowing that that there was some predestination, or did it make you feel closer to his work in some way? Definitely made me feel closer to his work. It is. I remember my grandmother saying. He was very peculiar. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when you're a kid, celebrity, like, because I didn't know good writing from bad writing or whatever. He was just a, he was just famous, right? right? And that was cool. Like Tennessee Williams, everybody's heard of him. There was a sense that that was achievable if like grandpa's first cousin is Tennessee Williams. But it also made it seem really far away too. It was like, I, I, it was both like, well, I guess it's possible then that People who are famous are actually real. Right. You know, that was neat. But then it was like, but then how do you become Tennessee yeah, Williams? Yeah, then yeah. how do you do it? So it didn't really help at all. I still find that. I still find like extraordinarily high achieving people. I feel like it's like seeing a snow leopard or something. I don't know it's, how it, any it, that <laughs> animal exists. So in something you said about Camino Real, which was a production I think you did when you were a student still? I was, I was 30. Oh, oh, you were 30? Yeah. No, 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 no. 28, was, 28. Oh, okay. Oh, maybe it wasn't coming around. It was a different Tennessee Williams. My terrible, my gaps in my. I did Glass Menagerie as a student. Oh, that might have been it. Yeah. Okay. So you said, I was aware of the full weight. This comes back to this yeah, self abdication thing, which is what we were talking about before. I was aware of the full weight of Tennessee's play behind me, you said. I had the sensation of completely disappearing, as if I was consumed by the wind and became wind. I could feel the whole room breathing in unison. Yeah. It was like a drug, and that was the first time I used. Yes. So that was that was that was that was, and I know is the feeling um, when you're playing Tom in the Glass Menagerie, even if you're 18 and a student, you know the next line is nowadays the world is lit by lightning. When you know that, you know, and nobody else in the room knows that, <laughs> and you know, and you know that they've been positioned, cajoled, manipulated. Their hearts are just tender and soft, and you're about to shoot a fiery lance right into it. <laughs> you know, it's such a great feeling. And I just uh, uh, the pea coat, the cigarette, the lights in the theater down. It was a feeling of uh, of community. And and also, what's great about old plays is you're like, that play's been done all over the world Mm -hmm. thousands of times, you know? So you're a part, you're in some weird psychic landscape dancing with those other productions. I don't know what I even mean by that, but you're part of some space-time continuum where when the lights, when a 
play casts a spell the right way, yeah. it's outside of time. Yeah. That was the first time I ever felt it. Right. Then it was a while before I ever felt that feeling as a professional. Uh-huh. Does it feel like a drug to you? Definitely. Yeah. Does it feel like a drug to you? Uh, oh, man. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe. You would believe, of course, because you understand it completely. Yeah. So much so, I said this the other day in an interview. I said, I've actually become a little bit addicted to extremity. The extremity of scale, the feeling that I feel in these great plays, I find it really, really hard to do without, the, without it. Well, what, what you're saying, I think, is incredibly difficult in the life of an ardor, artist, which is to create balance and integration in your daily life sure. when you're actually... You know, when people ask me, like, why do I think Marlon Brando is nuts or Michael Jackson is nuts or Glenn Gould, they reach such exquisite highs that the daily, scratchy, boring, lame, insipid action of Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and January and February, it's tedious beyond imagination <laughs> when you feel like you you when you feel like god yeah. has heard you you, you, you go well, i will come back come back god i'm still here you, you know i mean it, it it's and i think that's our struggle with ourselves is to go can i feel that way because it exists in your daily scratchy Tuesdays and Wednesdays in how mm-hmm. you listen to your wife, mm-hmm. how you take your kid to the soccer game, mm-hmm. how you ride the subway. You can do it. You can be that awake uh-huh. in your present day life. What I love about acting and why I, I miss it, and particularly acting on stage, nothing else matters. Right. For just a minute. Yep. For just a minute, I've got to do the Scottish play. And here's what's happening. Right. I can, this dude's going to swing a sword. I've got to match the sword up here. Then I've got to say this and I got to say it like my life depends on it. And I've got to lose myself in this holy incantation of a poem. And I don't have any emails. I don't have to care what time the babysitter gets back. I don't have to worry about this bill or that bill or that my sister that I really want to call back that I didn't. All that can wait. Until after the call, mm. you, you, you know, and it's, it's such peace yeah. and there is a peace in also going, I don't have to be me. I, I played the guy in the Scottish play and, um, my wife, Julianne, who oh, you, you've worked with some years ago in a movie, she was going off to Columbia. We're doing that thing. We tag teaming one in, one out. Mm-hmm. I finished the run of the play, came back to where we were living, Topanga Canyon in LA. And she was off to Columbia to shoot this movie. And she left. And I was unloading the dishwasher. And I remember thinking, wait, last night I was the Thane of Cordor. <laughs> last night. It just doesn't was, seem fair. Last night I was listening to witches. I know. And last night I was trying to do something so impossibly big and failing, failing, always failing. But at the same time, reaching in a way that forces you to expand your Heart, your brain, and your balls, or risk utter humiliation. I was trying to do that. 
And now, and now I have I'm a relationship the dishwasher. <laughs> with the dishwasher. And it really, I just mean, it's, there's something that feels, it, it, it feels like punishment yeah. after that, yeah. the, the highs. You know, there's a line I love, which is after the warmth of the spotlight, an ordinary temperature feels ice cold, you know, and that's what we struggle with. <laughs> and we all know the spotlight's still shining on somebody. You know, somebody's getting to play the yeah, thing yeah, yeah. Or, or something like sure. it. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Do you remember the first time you went to a theater? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what it was? Definitely. It's a little, everybody's, some people's stories are really classy. Mine is extremely memorable. I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, and my mother took me to see the traveling production of Annie. And I was 10 years old. And to put it simply, I was floored. I was colossally floored. I came home and I wrote a sequel to Annie called Arthur, which is about her brother, and this was the twist. Okay, the twist I came up with was that the parents were dead, but they had broken the heart necklace in half and given one half to the sister and the other half to the brother so that they could find each other. And they taught them a song. And the song goes, maybe far away. So Annie's sitting on her, on her fire escape singing maybe far away at the girls' home. And then down the alley, you know, in Hell's Kitchen, <laughs> comes a young boy with red hair. He's, or maybe real nearby. And they know the song, you know, and they can't figure out how they both know the song. And they find each other and run away together. Dude, Arthur. This was, is amazing. I know. What, what happened to Arthur? <laughs> I don't, well, I, I kind of, I didn't have a second act. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you could work one up. I only say that to tell you that it made a big impression. Oh my god, me. how old were you? Ten. 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 You're yeah. going home and already then. So this is an interesting thing to me. Because you are the, the I, I know a lot of gratuitously creative people, but I think you're the most like restlessly creative person I, I know. I think that your sense that you are constantly moving to try and capture this thing, whatever it is, try and find the next song, the next moment of artistic truth. Okay. You, 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 are, you are so restless and relentless with that in this extraordinary, inspiring way. And that sounds like it was already with you at the age of 10. Well, let's, you know, that we don't, I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes if people have this idea that you create your own life and that, you know, and, and their decisions are involved in everything. but. I feel so much like my life is happening to me that 
you're on this river. I didn't choose to be this way. I, I don't, I mean, I remember when I was younger, that quality of mine would be extremely irritating to other people, you know, and they would really let me know it. Um, but it, it wasn't like I won't, they would project some, like some ego manifestation. Oh, what's he doing? What's he, he's writing a book. Who does he think he is? And it wasn't like that inside. Right. Inside, I, I, I just had to do this. And I, 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 now what I learned quickly though is that is, I can have to do it. Other people do not have to like it. And they are allowed to make fun of me and they're allowed to think I'm an ego head. And if they're right, I'll stop, you know, or I'll change or sure. I'll like, like, but I started from very young age and I, I, I've tried to pinpoint why it happened. Sometimes I think it's because I experienced really my first big experience acting was a colossal failure, which made me be completely mistrustful of the experience. I, when I was a kid, I was in a movie called Explorers with River Phoenix. Yeah. It was one of those like open casting calls. I'd done a play at McCarter Theater, blah, 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 blah. I got an audition for this movie. It came in like 15 times, whatever. I got the lead in a big Hollywood motion picture. It's like a storybook. In my mind, I was going to be Henry Thomas from E.T. Mm-hmm. It was on. The movie was $30 million movie in 1984. This is like a $100 million movie now or something. I'm the lead and... And I'm River Phoenix is my scene partner and we're acting and we're big shots and we're fabulous. I got to, somebody picks me up and takes me to work and, you know, I'm going to be Michael J. Fox, you know, my little child eyes. And the movie came out and you, I mean, it, it, I don't think it played a whole weekend and it got terrible reviews and it was like the universe played a practical joke on you, you know, because they, they give you all this cause for your <laughs> ego to blow up and the fans of vanity and the, all every superficial dream I indulged at 13, you know, like, oh, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And then not only did it not happen, it's probably your fault. Like you just like, <laughs> like, like, guess what? You're not Henry Thomas, you, you know, and no sooner did that movie come out than Six months later, Stand By Me came out. So it certainly wasn't River's fault. Right? <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? And I was like, shit, I'm not an actor. Like, wow, that went badly. And that created a kind of permanent defense mechanism of this acting thing is not going to work out. I don't think I realized that Dead Poet Society was a hit until like six years later. Hmm. Because I had my head so I was like, well, this is the it's the bullshit. Just like Explorers was going to be a hit. I'm like, well, no, it actually is a hit. Yeah, we'll see. No, no, it really is. Like, I don't know. You wait, wait till tomorrow. They'll be pissing down our head tomorrow. Be no problem. And so it's like a trauma victim. It really is. It's just that was my first. I'm flinching. I was flinching the whole time, and my response to my way of flinching was to be like, okay, I'm going to write. Okay, I'm going to try to learn about directing. Okay, I'm going to try to learn about producing. Okay, I'm going to try to learn. I'm going to try to run a theater company. I'm going to make a short film. I'm not going to be a teenage casualty, mm. you, you, you know. And it started a perhaps a habitual relationship to like I got to stay alive. Like I want to keep playing. Mm. The circus is going to leave town any second. Right. And then those that, those flinchings turned into habit. You know, we all our habit runs so much of and our the life. The flinchings became art. Yeah, I mean, you 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 know, you're constantly driven. It seems to me, from the outside anyway, by 
the desire to find it, find it any way you can and keep trying to make it, inspire it in other people. I mean, you know, there isn't anybody else I look around this generation who's, who's, who's doing that, doing what you're doing. I think it's really, I think it's really going to amazing. Listen, I don't want to, I don't want to go on too much about this, but since you, since you raised it, I'm so fascinated by this idea in your book, in bright ray of darkness, this amazing book about being what it's like to be an actor on stage in this, you know, story about this, this star actor's life and his, his turmoil of his private life. You describe some, as something that I think really happened to you in real life, that you're on stage in a, a pre-show and you can hear people talking about you. And I bring this up because we mentioned you in River Phoenix. I, I read something where that you went and went into the bathroom at an early screening of that movie mm-hmm. and heard people talk about the movie from behind a door. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'm interested in, so in the pre-show that you've got in the book, and I think it was taken from a Malapart show, is that right? A theater company that you formed that mm-hmm. you're out on, or was it Hurley Burley? It was Hurley Burley. Right, yeah. Hurley Burley. Which was also at Acorn, which right. is where Malapart was. Right. And stuff. Yeah. You're on stage and you can hear the audience talk disparagingly uh-huh. about your ass, uh-huh. about your private life, uh-huh. you know, as though as you're though not a human though, being yeah. with ears who can hear you. And two things struck me about that. One, oh, this weirdly uh, almost a compliment to the fact that you are this removed in, in their minds – even in a pre-show, you're a sort of removed figure behind a glass box, right? Mm-hmm. That they don't have to obey the public laws of decency because you are a, so much a performer that it's like an art piece. It's like talking shit about the Mona Lisa to yeah, them or you're something. Allowed to, you, you know right? what I mean? Yeah. You're allowed to. The second thing I thought was, well, I guess for someone who's been famous as long as you have, there must be so many times when you are the audience and the general public is the performer, right? In these cases, yeah, you and River Phoenix crouched behind that bathroom mm-hmm. door are the audience listening to studio executives talk about how bad the movie is, how bad we are. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it must be a constant weird but juxtaposition in your isn't life. Isn't that all the world's a stage? I mean, what you're saying really, I mean, isn't that the profoundness yeah. when that moment happens in that play? Yeah. It, it's that we all are playing and we're a part of some collective dance and we're sometimes the object of viewing and right. sometimes the subject right. it's we're constantly and i think that's where the greatest tool for sanity is humility it it's just understanding at all times that you're on a star in space and you have no idea why you're born or why you die or why everyone you know was born or everyone you know is going to die and no one actually knows anything, then all of it can be a little funny. Then your feelings stop getting hurt so much. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, you know, those, those women, I mean, it really was funny for people that don't know. It, it was the, the director at a pre-show set where my character was supposed to be sprawled out, hung over, asleep on the couch. So, so when the audience came and took their seats, they're looking at me passed out on the couch. And then the Music starts and I wake up and blah, blah, Bobby Cannavale came in. But people literally would talk about me 10 feet from me uh, and say the worst things. 
And it was, it, it was talk so about the worst pre, you want to try to work on your confidence when you're like, oh, wow, those four women in the second row just took the bus in from, you know, New Jersey because they hate me. <laughs> Why would you come? You know, he's a terrible person. Did you read what he said in Us Weekly? What a terrible person. I know. I bet he's going to be awful. And you're sitting there. And then that's where there's another thing I include in there in the book. I mean, uh, I have my main character try to pray to calm himself down. And I used to have, I would work as I laid there on the couch, I would work on, yeah, I would work I, on this. I, I, gentle listener, I have um, the actor's prayer that, that Ethan wrote in his, in his book and I was going to ask you an incredibly cheeky way to read it. Sure, sure. Well, no, it came up naturally. So, should we do it? Uh, yeah. Can you? This be- is something I started working on in my head to not listen to the people <laughs> in the front. I would just try to breathe. And so, this is it. Dear St. Christopher, please forgive me. Forgive me for being so irresponsible. Tonight, as the audience takes their seats and the clock spins past eight, I give my thanks for my life and for this opportunity to contribute. I ask for a blessing on the stage and the hours to follow. In return, I offer my love, my sincere desire to be in service of something larger than myself. I will do better. I want to do a good job, but I know that to do a good job, I must let go of that desire. I must rely on my preparation, on my imagination, and my breath. My breath is my connective tissue between my fellow players, the audience, and myself. My breath is alive. It's not ahead of me or behind me. It is present and immediate, and so am I. I believe in the theater. I believe that in dialogue, thought, expression, and communication, a healing can take place. I ask to be a part of that healing. If I can be of service, I offer up everything. I offer my whole life. Forgive me. Let me be your voice and be of service. I pray for everyone in the audience that this night may sit inside the larger context of their life as some beautiful piece of fabric neatly laying in with the weave. I pray that they forgive my deficits or at least find some value in them. I pray for all the writers, living and dead, Shakespeare and the guy Shakespeare ripped off, the young playwright with a second play, all the writers who feel more nervous and more responsible than I. I pray that they know that if their play is any good at all, It's not theirs. I pray for the directors standing in the back of the theater, counting the empty seats, looking for one last thing to control. And then he forgets to pray for his children. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is so, that is so fantastic. That was a little, you know, that's a riff on a guided meditation that I, I just was like, it's like a version of a long mantra. In that is what you and I were talking about, about, being in service of the play, like I just got to get out of the out of the way here. But I love that you did it as a you worked on it on that couch while people were talking about your personal life, oh, yeah, or my ass, yeah. which was showing. Yeah, <laughs> he has pimples. <laughs> if I had pimples like that, I wouldn't show my life. Me neither, Beatrice. It's gross. He used to be so attractive. Oh, Christ. What happened to him? I tell you, get that ass out again yeah. now. And they'd be like, look at that ass for his age. That guy is a national treasure. I'm yeah. telling you. No, really, for his age, that's a great ass. <laughs> All right.
right, ladies and gentlemen, there he goes. There's Ethan Hawke. When I first started this podcast, did I think that I would be discussing Ethan Hawke's pimply arse as a way of affirming the magic of theatre? No. Mm, no, I didn't. Am I happy about it? Yes, I am. Ethan, as always, gave everything of himself, including that part of his anatomy, to this podcast, and I cannot thank him enough. Listen, there is more of all that, where that came from, in the second part with Ethan, which is wonderful. Please, please, if you can, join me for the second part of our conversation. It's just a joy. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here it is, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Sees plays sad and funny. That's stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage.